The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 37, One Down. His mother wasn't answering his texts, which wasn't like her. He had called and left messages, but she hadn't called him back either. She had a very small social media presence, a few groups she followed for hobbies in church, but she never posted to these. She was long widowed, although Jack suspected she may never have been married. His father had never been part of his life in any case, whether he was still above ground or not. She'd never spoken of him. It had always been just her and Jack. Now and again, Uncle Diar took young Jack on a holiday in his caravan to give his mother a rest, as he put it. Because these impromptu vacations took place a month or two before Christmas or his birthday, as Jack grew up, he suspected rest had precious little to do with anything. Rather, Jack's absences served to let her take extra shifts at her many part-time jobs for more money. But... There had always been a full stocking, presents under the tree, birthday parties, and a cake shaped like whatever fevered superhero dream fired his imagination that year. In summer, she took Jack with her on holiday to the southern counties. Jack spent his days chasing around the fields and woods with rosy-cheeked country kids who were complete strangers to him for the first five minutes after they arrived but who were his brothers and sisters and best friends all summer long. Unknown to him until the very last year, while he was out playing all day the second after she could get clothes on him and breakfast into him, his mother spent her days with the other women picking whatever crop was ready. Sometimes their husbands joined them partway through the season, and it seemed to Jack there were a few years when the place was nearly overrun with babies. Jack's father never darkened the door of their little bothy shed. But his mother grew tanned and had a sparkle in her eyes and more color in her cheeks than she normally did at home. And the best part was she came home tired but full of tales to tell Jack and she sang all the old ballads she'd learned as a young girl. In those golden weeks in his eyes, she became the summer queen which was nicer to think about than what was whispered about his own parentage back in the city. Look at those eyes and that hair. He's fay, that one. Where's the marks as clear as day? What was she doing before he was born? Jack had no idea and never cared. What he cared about now was he was here and she wasn't. He decided to research the tale that she had written on the paper he'd found in the box from the archives. He didn't remember her ever sharing it with him. Maybe now was the time to share it if it wasn't too late. When the company gathered to hear Jack's tale, he described the seasonal bower for each of them, adorned with all the beauty proper to its moment. 
To Baba Yaga he gave winter, hoping that the promise of spring could hide itself from her under protective snows and frosts. Lucas was given spring. Isabel had the transformative green to gold to copper of autumn. Jack surrounded himself with summer. Each scene was described as focused on the same little cabin nestled among some gentle hills, adorned in its respective seasonal finery. Jack began. Welcome, friends. Today I thought I would tell a story I found. I discovered it a few days ago. My mother wrote it down, though where she got it and why she never shared it with me as a child, I do not know. In any case, there was once a girl child born to a traveler woman passing the outskirts of a village with her people. When they took work that no one else would do, they were allowed within the parish until the work was done. But this girl was born at Yuletide and there was no work going on. And so, although and because it was Christmas, the travelers had to keep moving. The young mother of this wee baron was sickly and could not care for her. It is unknown whether she herself saw the spring, but she left the babe wrapped against the cold on the doorstep of the most likely looking farmhouse she could find. The farmhouse belonged to a couple who already had a house full of children and the wife had one still at the breast. Being good people, they took the child in and named her Robin for she was rosy like a robin with bright dark eyes. They soon came to love her as one of their own and raised her up equally with their own children, despite the neighbors muttering that no good would come of taking in a tinker's child, and were they sure she wasn't of baser origin or worse? What if she'd been left by the good people? What terrible fate might befall a human child by and by if the she decided they were displeased with the fostering of the one that they had left? The good wife and her man stood against this nonsense, and Robin grew into a beautiful, kind, and capable young woman, the pride of her foster mother's heart. She stole the hearts of several of the young men round about as well. Many courted her, though the arrangements they proposed had nothing to do with marriage. Even a village pauper did not marry a tinker's child. So Robin would have none of them and kept herself busy looking after her family, even though she was younger than most of her siblings. As they grew up and got married, Robin stayed to look after the house and the farm for her aging parents, nursing them as well. She did all without complaint thinking that after they both died, she would be allowed to keep the cottage, the only home she'd ever known, and which she dearly loved. Before her foster mother passed, she told Robin that their eldest son and his wife would have their holdings, as was their right by law. I am sorry, Robin, but I would do for you what I can. Take out the folded cloth at the bottom of my dresser, the old woman motioned. Robin took out the blanket and unfolded it. It was a quilt with pictures on both sides. One side was decorated with a multitude of brightly colored embroidered flowers and birds and showed a caravan going down a forested path. The other side depicted a cabin in a valley and the four quarters of the quilt showed each of the seasons in all their splendor, providing natural ornament for the cabin as the central motif. 
You were wrapped in the quilt with the caravan and embroidery when we found you, but the underside was made of calico, soft and warm, but it wore thin. So as you grew, I quilted my wish for you, a lovely cabin wearing all the beauties of the year. Spread it out, my child, and fill it with kitchen things, clothing, linen, silver, whatever you would like to take from this house that was your home. You are not too old for a dowry if that's what you want, but let what you take be my gift for your own home, wherever you may find it, the old woman said. With tears in her eyes, Robin embraced her old mother and laid a sheet over the cabin side of the quilt to protect it. Then she selected useful and meaningful things she thought she would need to set up housekeeping. She brought the corners of the quilt together and tied them up into a sack. The old woman passed away that night. Robin's foster kin returned to see all decently done, and Robin slipped away before the last songs had been sung at the wake. There would be no place for her in her foster brother's house. She found work all her life. Robin looked after babies as if they were her own and households as if she was the wise and gentle mistress rather than just another servant. Everyone she worked for saw her value until they didn't. As soon as times grew hard or the place of her home and work changed hands, Robin was let go. In each case, in addition to her last pay, she was gifted something from the house towards setting up her own place. As the years went by, Robin saw her collection less as her dowry and more her pension. As her bundle grew, she bent and diminished beneath it, a lone figure walking the road with her burden looking for work. And work always found her until the day when she was found too old to be of any use and every door turned her away. She walked up into the hills then, to a place known to be the domain of the fair folk. She came into a circle of trees that had within it a circle of stones. She opened her bundle and spread out the blanket. She marveled as she set out her things that she had taken no iron as a gift, for iron was a curse to the shining ones. She put her things to rights and stretched painfully to her full height. Well, perhaps the good people will want me to keep house for them. In the meantime, the meadow ablaze with poppies and daisies is my hearth, and the reaching branches the thatch of my roof. The tiny mortal woman lay down and curled up before the picture of the cabin. She slept and passed between the worlds as dusk fell. She woke to singing and dancing. Sitting up, Robin rubbed her eyes. They seemed to clear more quickly than she remembered. She tidied her hair. It seemed much less straggly and gray than it should have been. It was dark and thick, probably just the effect of the dappled shadows cast by the branches overhead and probably full of tangles. She'd dress it properly when she could find her comb. She rose to her feet nimbly, taking note of the lack of stiffness and pain. Around her was all activity. It seemed like hundreds of small folk were rushing about, finishing the raising of a sturdy cabin. Some were carrying her things, and as she stood up, four elvish women took up the corners of her quilt and folded it smartly. One curtsied as she presented it to Robin. 
Oh, thank you. But I can clean up after myself. I'm sorry I left my things lying about. It's hardly fitting for a first impression, is it? First impression, mistress? The elf woman queried, the unfamiliar expression awkward on her tongue. Do you think the owners of that cabin need one to keep house? Robin asked. I'd want them to think well of me, not see me as some mad old woman who scatters her things about. Robin saw that some of her things were making their way inside the cabin. No, no, she cried. Wait, those are mine. Then she regretted her selfishness and composed herself, explaining, I can't give away all my things, though I'm happy to share the best, of course, if there's work to be had. No work, mistress, except that which you choose to do. No hunger, no cold, no turning out, just home. A wee man in gray-green coattails pronounced, taking her hand and leading her to the door. If you're mad, I'm sorry for it, except all your race is a bit that way inclined. Old you are not, and ne'er shall be again. He pointed to her reflection in a small silver serving platter that had been placed upon a table in the cabin. Robin looked into the platter, turning it this way and that in the light of the sunlit room. She stared in wonder, then looked about. You who gave so much have been given your youth back and a home, the wee man said. We would have you show hospitality to travelers who come this way, but for whom it is not yet time to pass our borders. Show them grace that they might return to their lives if any should come to your door. And so, every sacred night of solstice, equinox, or mid-season, lost souls would find a meal, a rest, a story, and a song at Robin's hearth, and would make it back to their own lives. Changed, it's true, but not as one elf-shot or mad, rather as one shown true and unexpected kindness. And Robin dwells forevermore in her cabin on the edge of Tirnanog. Fortunate travelers have spread the tale of the welcome received at her hearth round the world, though to this day her cabin has never been found. Jack finished his story to silence. The Decameron shuffled, six of spades. Before he could respond to comments, Jack's phone rang with a restricted number. Mr. Truman? Jack Truman? Yes. This is the regional hospital. We are contacting you as your mother's next of kin. She was brought in with respiratory complications last night. She was supposed to be sheltering in place. We're trying to trace how she contracted the virus. She passed away this morning. Under current restrictions, her remains can be released to you, but you can't hold a public funeral, memorial service, or wake. Do you understand? Yes, Jack responded numbly. I'm sorry for your loss, the voice said, softening. I've made too many of these calls, and I don't get any better at them, and they don't get any easier, the clerk sighed. You'll receive some documents you'll need to sign and return by email, then... Tears poured down Jack's face. With a certain strange compassion, at least for an entity for whom death meant at worst a hard restart, Moot respectfully timed him out. One down, pigeons, Baba Yaga cackled into the public channel. What the hell did you do?
Isabel demanded. Yes, princess, exactly that. For Jack, I did hell, the witch signed off. Isabel and Lucas tried in vain to reach Jack, leaving frantic messages for him to contact them. Outdoor activity was still encouraged where he lived, so Jack went dazedly for a walk along the beach. Half hoping to go a dozen rounds with death if the opportunity arose, he was alone on the strand, his fists flexing powerlessly at his sides as he looked out to sea. He felt something in his pocket. The hazelnut he had carved for his mother. He hadn't given it to her yet. He'd been waiting to do it in person. He bent back his arm, ready to throw it into the outgoing tide, when something like starlight spilled from the unstoppered hole in the end. Jack put his eye to it, expecting to see the little photo of the two of them from one of their summers that he had carefully worked inside placing the happy moment like a ship in a bottle. Instead, he saw the place that flowed through his veins past memory and dreams. A voice like silver bells said, Thomas, do you want to come home? The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.